this. I'm up to 2 a.m. in Yellowknife treating flu, but I actually have to go back there. Now it's right here? No. No. What do you mean? These people don't have the flu? No. What do they have? They're not patients. What are they? Dancers. Dancers? I need a new partner. What, what, what is this? One of your, your Indian dance contest things? Cajun tea stick. Cajun? Like in, in Bayou? Jambalaya and, and rice and beans and crawfish jumbo, this kind of Cajun? Came in second last year. You know, Lee, the nickname for the Cajun two-step is the Lake Charles Slide, or the Cowboy Jitterbug, or the Whiskey River Jitterbug. Did you know that? I did not know that. Of course, Lake Charles, you know, our hometown, is known for uh, swamp pop, or swamp rock, I guess you could call it. Like, you know, gold band records. I think Dolly Parton recorded her first recording there. Lots of great recordings came from Lake Charles, but I never heard, uh, I'm I'm familiar with the Cajun two-step, but I never knew that was one of its aliases. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Uh, That's something really crazy because that means that Lake Charles is known more than Dr. DeBakey and diabetes. (laughs) Yeah, we talked about famous people from our hometown or famous people from Louisiana last episode, Uh, Dr. DeBakey being one of them. I also want to mention from this opening soundbite, this is the second time, I don't know if you're keeping track, the second time that Joel has referred to Gumbo as Jumbo. He did it once in the first season. I can't recall the episode. But um, I will point out later in the episode, Maurice will say Gumbo. So someone, I guess I guess the actor Barry Corbin for, for uh, Maurice wasn't on set that day when they shot this scene when Joel says Jumbo. Or else maybe he would have corrected him. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like that argument for a uh, GIF and GIF because they're both G's. And, like Joel's gonna have that except, argument. It's like <laughs> except Joel's completely wrong. <laughs> it is gumbo. But yeah. So so what's going on here? Marilyn is auditioning some some dancers. I guess we can get into it when we get into the episode proper. Probably we should talk about. Uh, what, what's even going on here, Charles? Yeah, so what's going on here is that we're talking about the CBS television sitcom series, Northern Exposure. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. Thanks, yeah, this is Lee. I'm a fan of the show, and uh, I've seen it a couple times. Charles, this is your first time watching every episode, except today we have like a very special circumstance, because, uh, well, you've seen this episode for the first time, we're going to watch it again because we have special guests joining us for sort of like a, a watch through. Um, our guests are obviously you may be familiar with uh, with Jay. If you've listened to the podcast, he's come on a number of times. He's the person who pretty much introduced me to the show. And uh, we're also glad to invite on our friend Daniel. Both all, all of us are Lake Charles natives. Uh, we all went to high school together. And Daniel's here with us. Uh, well, actually, Jay as well. Can you guys chime in? Are you guys here? Hey. Hey, Daniel here. Cool. So uh, we've already given Jay a brief introduction. Like, you know, we watched this show in high school. Uh, we watched like all of it uh, because of his mom starting watching the show when we were in high school. And she hooked us into it somehow. Now, Daniel, uh, I don't know if you were watching it while Jay and I would watch it. We probably you were probably over while we would watch it, but I've I've seen a few episodes here and there. I haven't I haven't seen all of it. I'm I'm not a huge fan of it, but uh, it's not it's not like something I wouldn't watch. I I would sit there and watch through it with you guys. Yeah, I have I have distinct memories of being at your house, Daniel, and 
what like binging this show, I kind of feel like it might have been in this season. Like I feel like it wasn't the beginning of the show when we were binging it at your house. It was like fourth or fifth season. Right, right, right. So maybe you might remember this episode as we watch it. But just to be clear, Jay, you know, Jay has seen all this show. Daniel has seen a good of like you know he's seen some of the episodes. But as of today's recording. They haven't been watching, like they haven't seen the episode yet. So they're going to be kind of somewhat fresh eyes, but maybe they'll remember what they see. But I also wanted to mention, Daniel, when we would watch at your house and binge it, uh, I remember very specifically, we would brew a big pot of community coffee, probably use way too many coffee grounds because we wanted, we wanted to, one, we wanted to stay up and binge. Two, we wanted to like we wanted to gain like a, a, a taste, like an appetite for coffee because we weren't coffee drinkers really at the time, but we wanted to be. Well, I think what we were trying to do was more so get a taste for black coffee with we're weaning <laughs> ourselves off the creamer and the sugar. And I, th- yeah. I feel like that we were trying to get, get our taste buds acc- uh, acclimated to black coffee. We're trying to drink coffee like grownups, I guess. But then it turns out grownups... Not all grown-ups drink coffee uh, black. So correct. But we we definitely gained a tolerance, I guess you could say. And uh, yeah, I bet we were probably drinking it with way too many coffee grounds, but it worked. <laughs> I can remember. <laughs> I just remember, like you know, we all of us used to hang out at this uh, diner that we always would frequent, and I just remember laying in bed at night with like my heart pounding <laughs> in my chest <laughs> because we drink way too much coffee for our age. When you guys were drinking uh, for any age. When you guys were drinking the black coffee, were you guys like, oh, this is really bitter, just like life? Mm, no, I don't think we were that uh, I don't think Not we had that gotten to that point in our lives yet. Yeah, we were still hopeful, full of hope. Well, okay, let me give a brief introduction to the episode we're watching today before we dive in. The episode is the, it's in season four, episode 22. It's called Kaddish for Uncle Manny. And Charles, you guessed about it last episode um, being about, you were asking Kaddish is a, uh, what is Kaddish? Is it a Hebrew word? Um, it is, the mourner's Kaddish is a, is a prayer uh, that we say for a lost one. And um, yeah, Charles, you're pretty accurate. This is going to be Joel's Uncle Manny. But without getting too much into the plot, we'll get there as we watch. The director of the episode is Michael Lang. This was his first episode directing for Northern Exposure, though I believe he will continue to direct as the series goes on. And it is uh, written by Jeff Melvoin, who has written a lot of episodes leading up to this one. Most recently, I think he wrote the double header uh, Ill Wind and Love's Labor Mislaid. Those are two episodes that were like back to back that sort of continued into each other. Same writer. And the air date for this episode, May 3rd, 1993. So uh, we're, you know, this show is more than 30 years old, but uh, this episode itself is still, still hasn't reached the 30 year mark, but 2021. So we're, we're pretty far in the future from when this originally aired. Okay, so the format we're going to use for this episode is one we used before with Jay. So basically, we're going to watch the episode in sync with each other. And then whenever a point of interest comes up, one of us is going to pause the episode and we're going to discuss that scene at length. Now, each of us is going to have about mm, three pauses, I want to give or take. We're not like super strict on that. But, (laughs) you know, uh, be prepared to hear each one of our thoughts on... uh, Three, six, nine, twelve. Twelve. I failed elementary math. <laughs> uh, we're going to have about 12 cuts where we're going to be discussing the scenes right there, listeners. Yeah, we, we'll try not to have more than 12. We'll try to limit it. That That's what the number's for is to limit us from like pausing every second. But uh, yeah, we can each try to try to chime in at least three times. But uh, 
I think it's fine if we go under or over. That's uh, that's uh, the rules are all made up. So it doesn't matter. But okay, yeah. So if you're watching along at home, go ahead and uh, set your set your time code to zero zero zero, and uh, we'll come back here whenever we've paused. Okay, pause. We're right at the scene where Joel's about to enter his office, and I want to point out something about the music. So here's what I want to point out, and it's something I've noticed. I thought about in in intervening years is the different music that they play for each person. Yeah, Joel's always has like a clarinet. It kind of has that that klezmer sound to it, uh, and I really like that. It's very thematic. It it's it's fitting, uh, and I really enjoy listening to it. Yeah, it's uh well apart from being just really great, like it's very enjoyable music. I think it's very te- like David Schwartz. I'm guessing is the uh, composer for that. Uh, yeah, you're right. It does have that sort of clarinet klezmer sound that I think we've talked about Charles sort of, to me, evokes New York, like, uh, specifically like Jewish New York, like very Woody Allen style or something. So that always, that's the, uh, what you were saying, Jay, it's like the trademark. That's the, the, the signature of Joel, the, the musical signature, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever we hear that, we're almost always in line for a Joel-centric episode, especially if it's involving his heritage. Uh, That clarinet is usually a good indicator of that. Uh, Right before this scene, though, we have not talked about the introductory scene of this episode Mm. right there. And I wanted to have a small little comment about that. In that introductory scene, we see Chris and Bernard and K-Bear giving off the regular monologue right there. But two people from West Virginia, the Miller brothers, are coming in to, uh, to beat them up. They're coming in to settle business. Yeah, we've heard of them before in the show. And I don't know if we've ever seen them, I guess. But this is apparently they're tying it back to the episode where Chris was uh, hit with like an extradition order to go back to serve time in Virginia. These are the guys who did that, apparently. There's this long feud between his family and their family. And Bernard, being Chris's brother, is uh, now sort of roped into this. It's funny that Bernard is trying to talk Chris out of it and Chris misinterprets this to, to be like, oh, you want to join the fight? Yeah, I'm sure that's fine. Uh, before I go any further, right. before I go any further, Daniel, is any of this familiar to you? Do you recognize some of these characters? I, re- I recognize most of them actually, but yeah. I really recognize, I feel like I have seen that opening scene where the where Bernard's like, what the, what's going on? I don't understand why, why what, what's going on with this, this dispute between the Miller brothers and and uh, Chris, and then also the miscommunication with, uh, oh, you want to join in? Let's let's do this. Yeah. And then they were really <laughs> friendly about it. Like they're patting each other on the back and they just kind of walked out without, you know, causing a fuss. Yeah, I love that. It's so, you know, they're, they're arch enemies, but it's so just like, it's so baked into their relationship that they're like, cool with that. They're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. It sounds like a, they're kind of almost professional about, I don't know if professional, but um, they have a, they have a rapport together. Right. But so so it sounds like Daniel you may rec- you may have seen this episode but we'll see I guess as it keeps playing. Yeah. Yes. I like that the Miller brothers are used once again. Uh this is not the first time they've been referenced. The show Bible is really being utilized because I think it's throughout season 4 and season 3 that we've heard about the Miller brothers and Chris's long long beef with them. Uh, I'm surprised they even showed up in this episode. I was delighted to actually see them use the show Bible like this. Yeah, we're finally getting to see the Miller brothers, uh, which is which is great, and um, right where we paused, 
uh, we, it's kind of leading into our opening soundbite that we played, but it's interesting. We didn't, you can't see this in the opening soundbite, but, uh, we should point out right around where we paused, Joel is like walking into his office and there's a line out the door and, uh, he's got a line coming up, something about like, uh, you know, I had to treat the flu in Yellowknife. Uh, it was like a flu epidemic and now it's spread here. He thinks that this line is for flu patients, but, um, Let's go ahead and I guess hop back in and uh, Let's do it. and see see what's what's going to happen. All right, let's pause. I paused it just after the scene when uh, Joel tells Marilyn that his uncle Manny passed away, and uh, I think it's a very well presented beat. Like Marilyn, her her performance of "Oh, I'm sorry." It's very long paced out and it really kind of sucks the uh, the sound out of the environment. I guess there's still some background noise, but it feels like a very personal moment that they focus on, which I like. But um, the main thing I wanted to talk about really quickly was Marilyn's audition process. It reminded me of an old story that I think is probably apocryphal. I don't, I don't know if it's actually true because I couldn't find it when I was searching online, but it was about Miles Davis his audition process, I want to say it was for drummers, but maybe I just remember that because I'm a drummer. But uh, there was a story that Miles Davis would, n- instead of like auditioning his drummers, he would just ask them to walk from ro- one side of the room to the other. And by that, he could tell maybe their confidence or maybe their uh, looseness, I don't know, to, to swing, to play jazz. So I always thought that was interesting. And I, I remember, I think I had heard that story before, before I had ever watched this episode back in high school, because I remember this scene, Marilyn auditioning her dancers. And it reminded me of that story, which may be fake, but it's an interesting story. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that just plays more into the eccentricities of uh, Miles Davis right there. <laughs> I think that what's really interesting about this one is that she's asking for dancers to be her partner, but she herself is still in this scene. Whereas her partners are the ones that are going to be moving. But later in the episode, we're going to see this flipped where she is looking for uh, stillness in her partner. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see when we get there. But uh, but it is important. Yeah, Joel points out, you know, what are you doing? Like, you're not dancing or anything. She says she watches them move. So um, that was it. That was a very quick interjection. But let's keep watching the episode. Okay, pause. So I'm pausing right at the scene where Chris and Bernard are eating lunch, breakfast. It's not really made clear exactly what they're eating. Could be brunch. Uh, They have an order of two bloody sirloins, uh, OJ and spaghetti right there. I think that's a very interesting food order because the steak is bloody and spaghetti is also reminiscent of blood. So already we're getting some food imagery that is very in line with what they are talking about, which is about using their fists to get into physical altercations. And the uh, the OJ right but, there, but Charles, is, hmm? but Charles, they didn't even order this food. It was uh, it was gifted to them on the house by Holling. They didn't order bloody steak. Holling oh, anticipated yeah. their needs. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Holling is one step above them. <laughs> and speaking of one step, they have an order of OJ, and I think that's just Northern exposure being ahead of the curve, knowing that OJ Simpson would turn out to be oh violent. Oh my gosh, so that's messed up. They just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they just knew right then and there. They're like, all right, get three things that are violent. Oh, my God. When was the, no. when were the, what year no. was the OJ trial? We're going to have to Google this. Yeah. 94. Oh, really close, 95. man. 94, 95. Okay, wow. Yeah, very close, actually. That is, yeah. 
That's wild. Huh. But it is crazy how it's sort of synonymous, I guess, with that piece of history, OJ. I don't think about that when I'm drinking orange juice, but I guess if you say OJ, <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> All I can think during the scene is, uh, like, where is the conch shell? Uh, for those of you who don't know, the conch shell is a device used in Door to the Flies to <laughs> represent society collapsing right there because Chris is getting into some super violent, primitive ways right there. Uh, I like that they're reverting back to their primitive ways with no laws or ethics, whereas Joel is really tied up in his feelings about Uncle Manny, which is also primitive in a way. Like, yeah, we can acknowledge that, like, oh, like, an individual died. That's, like, the number one thing that humans share with everything else in life is that it ends. So in a way, even though they're talking about two completely different things, there is a tie between what Chris and Bernard are doing in this plotline and what Joel is also feeling in his plotline in that we're kind of going back into our human selves and seeing how we seeing how we interacted with our past selves. Yeah, and you can even see Joel in the background like taking his jacket off uh, in the background of Bernard's shot. And the, the shot doesn't cut, it continues and follows as Joel gets closer to the camera. We pan away from Chris and Bernard, and we're about to join him at the bar if we want to hop back in. We do. I want to I wanna point out that Chris, uh, the very first thing that he grabbed to put on his bloody steak was uh, the Tabasco bottle. Yeah, I saw that. And I think he, and then it I looks like... I think that fits in with the, uh, the Cajun theme. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Louisiana Cajun theme. I think he also puts... I want to say it's a pepper salt? shaker, or maybe it's it might salt. might have been pepper. Salt's it. It's hard to tell because it's a shaker. I do also like his uh, his quote, what he says, I don't write the facts, I just repeat them. Mm. I think that's a neat line. I also wrote, I think it's Chris who says it, uh, you can dress it up any way you want. Anthropologically speaking, we're only a nanosecond away from spears, loincloths, and sleeping in the trees. So kind of what you're saying, Charles, how we're about to go primal and like get rid of our ethical values and, and things like that. All right, let's hop back in. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'll, I'll pause it here. I'll pause it there okay. just because we can briefly touch on it. I think Daniel should set this one up. <laughs> okay. Talk about um, the, the store whenever like Marilyn gets hauling. He just seemed really confused like when she walked in. He's like, what's this? Do you need something, Marilyn? She's just kind of barking, not like barking orders better, but at him, but <laughs> more so like kind of giving him directions and just kind of getting a feel for what she sees in hauling. And it was really funny. She said, pick up the pretzels. And that, that was the that was really <laughs> funny part about that. I do think that is funny, specifically the pretzels. Cause like it, <laughs> it just cuts to hauling and he's like already bending over. Like it's a, it isn't, if you watch it, it's not a continuous, like the motion is not continuous. So it's a bit of a jump cut that I think is funny. And maybe that's part of it subconsciously. And maybe it's because it's like more of a wide shot. Charles, we've talked about how like comedy plays out in the wide shot. Maybe because it's cutting to a wide shot, it subconsciously feels funnier. Um, but just since we're on the topic of shots, that is a hilarious scene. And the opening is... Uh, it starts on Hollings' boots. So we're like watching his legs move from like someone's point of view. Obviously, we find out it's Marilyn's point of view. But yeah, I love that, as you said, Daniel, Holling is confused, but he's also compliant. Like he just does whatever Marilyn right. says. It's like, okay. <laughs> it almost like out of context, 
that looks like a standard sexual harassment case. <laughs> like if you, when you watch that, oh and gosh. especially when she says like, "Pick up the pretzels," and it's like, I was like, <laughs> "Oh <what?"> my god!" <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Um, yeah, but thankfully, you know, she's just uh, as we hear from Holling in that next scene is like, uh, you know, she's. It's sort of like taking it to the fundamentals. When you think about dancing, you have to learn like moves and steps. But for Marilyn, the fundamentals are just like actually moving, actually bending over, picking up things, and and being later being still. I don't think we've gotten there yet, but they talk about being still as being part of dance. This is something I wanted to key in on, even though we haven't. This is like the beginning of a plot line for Hauling and Marilyn. And obviously Shelly. We can see that Shelly is a little surprised maybe um that you know is she gonna get jealous yeah so she uh, in this scene like you know holling's like oh hey could you take that order babe i've got a i've i've got so much practicing to do i'll be back so he leaves her with like the the actual work while he gets to you know have fun and, and practice dancing and yeah throughout this episode she does become jealous uh of this which i thought was a little off for her character um Normally, we've—I think we've seen episodes where hauling, so, hauling's the one to sort of uh, maybe not carry his weight fully in the relationship, like keeping secrets from Shelley, not telling her the full truth. Yeah, that's something to just keep a tab on as we watch and see, like what what Shelley's going through in this episode. Also, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but we see the Miller boys again. Shelley is waiting on them. And she tries to take away their lasagna. And they're like, no, 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 leave it. We're not done with that yet. So I think that's a little, that's part of that home field advantage she was talking about, is she can help them out by by not helping the Miller boys beef up enough uh, for the fight the next day. So she was actually trying to get the food away to actually help Chris right. and Bernard. I never thought about that, but that is that's awesome. That's what I was thinking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, she doesn't succeed. Um, but, you know, the spirit of it is there, I think. Yeah. All right, well, let's keep watching. Pause, pause. Sorry, this one's going to be very short. Uh, Joel is going through these photos, family photos, and there's a photo from his bar mitzvah. Joel says, um, "It was this is a picture from my bar mitzvah. We had it at my cousin's because they had a big backyard. Well, the photo is like Joel and maybe like a rabbi or someone standing in front of a case of Torahs, which is, uh, the Torah is basically like the, it's like the first five books of the Bible or whatever. And, and it's this giant scroll. It, they're incredibly expensive because a uh, little fun fact is they're, every Torah is like handwritten and they're so long that sometimes a Torah, like someone will start writing a Torah and their like grandson will finish it or something, you know, the granddaughter. Like it's, it goes through, it's a family thing. Um, so, you know, obviously very expensive and very uh, artisan crafted, but... Uh, sorry, I wanted to pause because I find it hard to believe that his cousin has just like a case of Torahs in their house. <laughs> no. There's a picture, he says, this is at my cousin's, and it's, there's a picture of them standing in front of a case of Torahs. That's all I That's wanted to say, unless you guys wanted What's, to... Uh, the, yeah. the, the boy in the picture kind of looks like Joel. You think it was uh, photoshopped, I, any? I think it if was... that technology the, existed? I think it might have actually been a photo from his childhood, yeah. Right? Huh. And it wouldn't necessarily need to be... Childhood. Oh, is Rob Morrow Jewish? I, that's I a good know. question. Let hmm. me look this up. Help me out here, Google. To the Google. Other internet search services are available. <laughs> is Rob Morrow Jewish? He is of Russian Jewish descent. Wow. So maybe it actually was his, uh, his yeah. photo. 
It's convenient. I think they would use it if 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 he was actually Jewish, he would have a photo from his bar mitzvah, and they'd probably use it if he was Jewish. Right. I I feel really bad because before you had explained that scene, Lee, I thought those were like school trophies. <laughs> I was school a little confused on that too background. as well, Charles. That's what like, I was. What thinking are they as standing well. in front of this display case? I, I thought, yeah, I thought it was like a display case. And I was just like a bunch of trophies that they won for like athletic competitions <laughs> or maybe chess or something. I didn't, I didn't realize those are. That, that was I my initial culturally thought. Culturally ignorant as well. I, I am as well, Charles. Yeah. So me and Daniel, me and Daniel are on the same page right there. <laughs> um, I could, I can bring in a little fun fact here. I actually watched the deleted scenes earlier this morning. Um, don't worry, you aren't missing out on too much. I'll, I'll explain it to you guys. But there is a deleted scene in this scene. And it almost suggests, like, if you watch this scene with the deleted scene included, it's like an extension for the scene. It would suggest that this scene comes much later in the episode. Uh, I really like the position of this scene so far. Like, I think this is a good place for it. But with the extension, which I'm about to explain, it, it seems like it might. this scene might have been meant for a later moment in the episode. So the extension is Maggie, it's the same thing. But before she notices the book and all the Jewish stuff, you know, all his old stuff, uh, she says, you know, I found a congregation up in Anchorage that is welcoming you to say Minion with them, if, if you'd like that. And um, Joel says, no, I've got this outbreak of flu and Yellowknife, so I literally can't get away from that. Like, I won't have any time to do that. And uh, spoilers, I guess, for Daniel, maybe for you too, Jay, if you don't remember, but a large part of this episode, you probably guessed it because Joel's like, where am I going to find a minion? He's got to find 10 Jews in Alaska. So that, that's going to be a big part of the search of this episode. And um, we haven't even talked about that search yet as we've been watching this episode. So I almost feel like with that extended deleted scene, this interaction probably comes later, later in the episode, originally. Well, hold on a minute. You said the... Extended scene talks about the outbreak of flu in Yellowknife. Didn't they already address that? Didn't they already show Joel coming back from that to find Marilyn auditioning yeah. dance partners? Yeah, and he says he uses that outbreak that that's brought up again because he says he can't, uh, he wouldn't be able to go say minion with the congregation up in Anchorage. I guess my point is, wouldn't that extended scene take place before? The episode where, I mean, the uh, scene where Joel comes back into the doctor's office at the very beginning. Oh, that's a good point. I think it, you know, I chronologically. Think it, yeah, I think we're to believe that. Actually, that could also be a reason why it's cut out too, because it's confusing. But to me, I thought it was just like him saying that he still has to go back there. Um, oh, that's already said. Well, okay, but I haven't seen the the scene extension, so I, I'm not sure. But just yeah. based on your description, and it just sounded kind of out of place. Like that would have already, like it would have already happened before yeah. he sees Marilyn. Yeah, but well, if, if that did happen before he sees Marilyn, that's also before he gets the phone call to know his yeah, yeah. has died. So how? Why would he be looking at pictures yeah. with Maggie? Maybe it was cut <laughs> because it's just too confusing. But I do think it was they cut also it for continuity. Yeah, but I do think also just her mentioning that she's found a minion. Like this is, she would say that if the scene takes place here, she would say, "I found a minion" before the search for a minion even began. You yeah. Know? So just to refresh our minds on the the Hebrew vocabulary, the the Kaddish is the prayer, mm -hmm. and the minion is what's required to say the Kaddish. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Joel okay. says you need ten Jews to say a Kaddish. So um, ten Jews make the minion to say the Kaddish. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So real real quickly, <laughs> yeah. as we go along through this episode, I'm starting to remember more and more parts of it. So I have I Ooh, have seen this episode and I have remembered it. I am starting to remember. 
what's going on through this episode. Well, cool. This should feel uh, you know somewhat familiar. So we'll see. Uh, we'll keep. That's what it's starting to feel like. Good. So does that mean we're violating the uh, the prime directive of the podcast? Then <laughs> we've totally the prime directive being we want to introduce the show to a new audience, but we've totally violated that on multiple occasions. <laughs> <laughs> Just just cut that part out, Lee. <laughs> you can just edit that <laughs> out. Add character. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm totally leaving it in. It's, it's All right, let's keep in. going. Let's keep going. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, let's press play again. Okay. Pause. So I'm paused right after the scene where Maurice is laying out his plans in order to round up ten Jewish people. I have to say, uh, <laughs> if you didn't have this with like any sort of context, this is only one bad perspective. From like 1930s Germany. Wait, what? What are you talking about? They are trying to round up any number of Jewish people they can. There is a poster board that says "Wanted." Members of the Jewish, Jewish faith. faith. Yeah, this seems like uh, Nazi. Uh, you know, like Vichy France or whatever. You know, like Nazi occupied regions. It's messed yeah, up. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite. Uh, I, I didn't catch this detail until now, but in this scene, they are discussing uh, the Jewish people that they can find. In Sicily, Alaska, and they're lamenting about the problems of saying, like, oh, this probably isn't, like, a whole lot of them in this whole region. We're going to have to split up, go into different sectors of the map and find them. And we also need to know how to identify who is Jewish and who's not. And in that example, Maurice brings in, like, a couple of, um, I don't know what to call them, like, like some giant poster boards. Yeah, he's got, like, a, he's got like uh, pictures, like, a, like kind of blown up images that are used for presentation. Yeah, and in one of them, he says, like, oh, this is what used to be, like, the old stereotype of Jewish people, and it's, like, this black and white photo of uh, uh, Jewish people, and they pass around yeah. this photo in the round table as if the people there didn't know what Jewish people looked at. They're all looking at it, like, oh, And also, okay. he mentions how, like, outdated, it's sort of an outdated stereotype of this is, it's basically, like, a picture of, like, Hasidic Jews, but, yeah, so they're still, like, hmm, I should probably remember this. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, unintentionally I don't think they meant that to be that funny it is pretty funny when they're yeah. doing that <laughs> but otherwise uh, a very sweet scene we can see that Maurice is willing to go the distance even though he himself he doesn't even know the name of the deceased he thinks it's his grandfather like Morty uh, or something Maggie yeah. Maggie corrects yeah. him Maggie sweetfully corrects and in fact it's Maggie that's being the voice of reason she's saying like why don't we just go off of like last names that seems like the most logistical way to find them right there already we can see that Maggie is very caring toward Joel's situation right there and it's not like Holling isn't caring but Holling's looking at this almost on like a superficial Maurice. level Maurice Maurice um, yeah. Maurice is looking at this at a superficial level yeah and you did say it's like it's a, it's a sweet scene because we can tell the heart's in the right place, uh, but we can also see that the it's stuff done that, in typical Maurice fashion, where it's like he cares, but only as much as he's socially obliged to care. Yeah, and he's even like kind of knocking down the Jewish people a peg. He's saying yeah. like, you know, these people, I was really glad to have them at the button when I was up in up in space, but you know, none of them, of course, of course, none of them. Uh, you know, flew in the Mercury capsule, or you know, he's basically saying like none of them were astronauts, but they were the like the computer scientists or or whatever. That's Maurice's arrogance showing again. Another thing yeah. I wanted to point out is kind of funny where Maggie pointed out about the last names. It's like yes, the uh, the last names that'll give us a uh, a clue. And that, that to me that seems like he's kind of he's not like completely clueless, but he's a little clueless. Yeah, like she <laughs> she has a better idea what what they need to be looking for, whereas he's kind of. 
just kind of doing his own his his Maurice way. Yeah, he's I, again, yeah, like also like Charles was saying, like that seems to be the more practical approach uh, because he ta- you know Maurice starts off by talking about like you know usually like it used to be the tip of the penis like before the circumcision. <laughs> Um, and, and the scary uh, thing is he goes to change the picture and we're like, what are we about to see? Wow. Funny. I think while we were watching it, Jay, you were like, there's a, there's a glance that like Holling gives to Shelly. And uh, there is an episode where Holling in the second season, uh, all is vanity. Like he almost gets a circumcision because Shelly uh, mentions something about, uh, okay. I don't even know if we want to get into this, but, uh, but I think it's funny that, Hauling, you know, he gives a look to Shelley because after Maurice mentions that bit of, uh, like that could be a, that used to be a, a telltale sign. Uh, Shelley is writing it down as if she's like right. taking the notes. Call back to, uh, to that episode. Call back to that episode where Hauling was considering his own circumcision. Right. And then, and then also, I just think it's funny because like Shelley's like, okay, that's a good note to write down. And Hauling's like, uh, I don't think you need to write that down. Like, <laughs> That's what I got. It's like, I don't think that's really, you don't really need to be taking notes. Like, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that was the end of that scene. We flashed to where we're about to pick up. Ed is, is stapling signs wanted members of the Jewish faith. So, so let's hop back into there. Well, we can't, we would be remiss to continue playing if we didn't talk about the scene with Chris and Bernard. Bernard oh, is there was a scene right before this. Yeah. Please, please tell us what's going on. It, it's Chris is uh, at the punching bag, and he's got Bernard with him with his hands in a pickle jar to try to you know toughen up the skin. And Chris again is talking, is going on about the the uh, primal nature of the fight and whatnot. And he finds out it's revealed that Bernard has never been in a fight before. He's got all of his natural teeth. He you know, and he's clearly scared out of his mind. Um, and Chris is trying to to talk him up saying, yeah, there's just some dormant gene that, that hasn't been activated yet in you because, uh, you know, you're a Stevens, it's in your blood, but you can tell Bernard is not comfortable with the situation at all. Right. Uh, they also soak their hands in pickle brine, right. pickle yeah. juice. Yes. Is that an actual thing? Does that actually toughen up your skin mm, for physical altercations? I, no idea. I have no idea. Yeah. No, I have any of us ever, have any of you guys ever been in the fight? Because I've I've never been in the fight. Uh, not I've like I've never been in a fight. I've definitely I guess I've been in a fight, but not like a like it was probably just like a scuffle. I would call it more of a scuffle. The only thing that I've really been in is just basically my older brother's beating up on me. It wasn't really a fair <laughs> yeah. fight. It was just kind of me getting my whooped. <laughs> <laughs> and it yeah. wasn't really like like black eye or or, or bloody nose or or bruise or anything. It's just, they were just beating up on me or, or picking on me because I was the youngest and. I'll admit I was I was a little bit of a brat back then, but and some of it I deserve, some of it I didn't. <laughs> but it is what it is. So no, I haven't actually ever been in a actual fist close fist brawl. Yeah, that reminds me because um, I my older brother we would obviously get in fights. There's a, at a certain age like that stopped, but um, we would also even get in for fun, get into like pillow fights. And I was just back uh, at home uh, for Mother's Day. And when I got home, like I had been driving for a bit, I got out of the car, had like a, um, like a, like a bottle of water that I drank. So I was going to throw it away in the trash can before I go inside and see my, see my family. And I opened the trash can and there's like 
the pillow, this giant pillow that I remember because my brother, he would be like, when we get into a pillow fight, he'd be like, choose your weapon. <laughs> he would grab like the giant <laughs> pillow that was like very substantial, very heavy. This pillow is sitting in the trash can. They finally threw it away. I guess it's been like, they probably th- should have thrown it away earlier, but it just, it was that, it's that thing that we talked about, Charles, in um, the episode where we were talking about Proust, where you get this recall, this mem- memory, um, involuntary memory. Like I saw this pillow and I just remembered like getting smacked and just like seeing stars <laughs> from <that> pillow fight. <laughs> oh, I like, he, he picks like the, the weapon that can inflict the most damage. <laughs> um, so yeah, fi- fights. Um, what I, I noted some other things um, from that scene with Bernard and Chris. Uh, Chris references chop sake movies, which I had never heard that term. It's a term for... Uh, kung fu movies. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a PC that term. A or, go ahead. Is that a play off of Chop Suey? It is. Yeah, and like sake for like I'm gonna sock you. So, but Chop Suey isn't like, has nothing to do with uh, fighting. Hang on, hang on. No. Yeah. no, 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 no. Uh, I think that I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, but I don't think Chop Suey is even a Chinese thing. I think it's a Chinese American thing. Right. I, I believe it's invented in America. You're probably right there. Yeah, I don't think it. Yeah, it's more of a Americanization. Um, but that's just the term, I guess, that eri- that started arising with these kung fu movies. Um, this is one of the you'll see throughout the episode. There's a lot of great camera movement and camera angles and stuff. There's a really cool one where Chris is talking about when you're in a fight, everything seems to slow down, and you can see like the fist approaching your face. You can you can count the hairs on each knuckle, and the shot is like really close up on Chris's face and his fist, which he's got right next to his face. And the camera focuses, uh, it racks focus from Chris's face to the fist. So it's like, you know, Chris's face becomes blurry and the fist becomes uh, in crisp detail, you know. Um, that's, a, yeah, that's a cool it's a angle. Yeah, clever, clever use of uh, camera angles right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, something we don't normally see in TV, but, you know, every once in a while it's a little artistic choice. All right. Should well, we hop back in? Yeah, let's get back into Ed hanging up some signs. Pause. All right, so there's a lot of scenes that were just covered. I kind of want to quickly go through a couple, and I just wanted to stick on one. So the first one was like Joel going to see Maurice to thank him for beginning this search for the minion. And then there's some scenes with uh, Holling and Marilyn practicing. Uh, But the one I wanted to touch on uh, first was Ed is in his cabin, and uh, sorry, Joel is in his cabin. Ed comes to visit him, and... uh, it's interesting because this is the first time that Ed has actually knocked to show some reverence, perhaps, which um, it's it's funny because, you know, well, we know Ed, he says, like, Indians don't knock. It's rude. Um, and maybe he finds that this is a way to show some reverence to Joel. But I've always thought that Ed not knocking is uh, is not to be mean or cruel to Joel. That's just the way, you know, that's the polite, I just the normal thing to do. It, it would be rude to knock. Uh, it doesn't matter. It, he, he changes it up for this episode, perhaps, to show some appreciation or some reverence to Joel, but, uh, he's found Joel, someone, uh, a Jew for the minion. It's this, uh, hitchhiker. Joel says, no, it's impossible. Jews, Jews wouldn't hitch. That's it's, he can't be a real Jew, but, uh, he's here, this guy, Buck Schoen, and, uh, Joel meets him and asks Buck to say the Shema. Would you mind re- reciting the Shema? The Shema is just a classic, uh, Jewish prayer, Hebrew prayer. Uh, that is kind of used for 
pretty much anything. I, it's used a lot in services. Um, it's I remember saying it every night. You know, you can use it in times of uh, hardship when you need like strength. But really, um, uh, the the translation for it, it's very short prayer. Is uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then there's a second part which Buck doesn't recite, but I, I guess the the first part is the is the most important. But the second part says, "Blessed is the name of His glorious kingdom forever and ever." Uh, I've always said it with the two, like the part one and part two. But um, yeah, it's an interesting sort of like uh, what would you call that? Just like an indicator. If you're really Jewish, you could say the Shema. It was a, it was a test that Joel gave him to prove if he was truly Jewish. Right, right. I that really reminded me of a scene from the West Wing. Um, three of the four of us would recognize this scene right here. Yes. So in this yeah, scene, I just watched that episode uh, recently. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great episode. So really quickly, the episode is just trying to say like uh, uh, pre- the president, President Bartlett, is trying to prove on someone's Christianity, just like uh, Joel Fleshman here is trying to prove that this person has Jewish faith. In that scene, President Bartlett says, "Can you name any of Jesus's disciples? If you can't, that's okay." I usually can't remember the names of my kids, or for that matter. And then the person responds back with, Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and James. Mr. President, Christianity is not demonstrated through a resuscitation of facts. You're seeking evidence of faith, a wholehearted acceptance of God's promise for a better world. For we hold that man is justified by faith alone, is what St. Paul said. Justified by faith alone. Faith is the true shibboleth. And I think that that's actually like a really good rebuttal from this individual saying like, you can't just recite facts. Like that doesn't prove anything of what your lineage or your religion would be. And I think that's ultimately what they're trying to hammer home on this entire episode with Joel and his faith. Yeah, because we'll see, we sort of begin to see it in this scene. Obviously, Joel's surprised that Buck is actually Jewish, but you know, we learned that Jews come in all shapes and sizes, sure. But um, it's also that we begin to see maybe he's a little... At first, for this scene, I was trying to read his reaction, but we'll see throughout as we keep going that Joel maybe becomes more and more uncomfortable with the idea of uh, saying the Kaddish with a group of strangers. You know, they're, they're Jews, but they're strangers. Well, the first, the first Jewish person that is brought to him to be part of his minion uh, isn't somebody who's very confidence-inspiring. It's this hitchhiker, which <laughs> Joel says can't possibly be a Jewish person. Additionally, you can tell he's, he's really just there for the money because he's asking at all these mm. details about per diem and when he gets to eat and where he's staying and all this stuff. So that, that's not very confidence-inspiring for Joel to have as his first additional minion member. Yeah. Uh, some of the other scenes we watched before we paused was, uh, I think it was the last scene that we watched before we paused, is um, Shelly. Uh, uh, we can see more of how this is affecting Shelly. I find it surprising because Holling is so happy and excited. Like he's having so much fun with these dance lessons and something's really irking Shelly. Well, in the last scene that we watched, she's talking to Dave, watching Holling move around the brick, like practice and work at the same time. And she asked Dave, you know, do you like, the, what do you think about the way that Holling moves? He says, yeah, I think he moves pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, Shelly says, well, do you think he's sexy? And Dave says, yeah, sure, he's sexy. Um, so <laughs> what is it? What is it with Shelly? Um, I guess, Charles, we know what what is the result of this storyline, but w- 
Jay and, and Daniel, what do you think's going on with Shelly here? Well, I think it's your typical Shelly being jealous. I mean, I know we kind of talked about this a little before, and I don't know if we have done it on air or not, but sometimes Holly is the one that gets jealous, but other times I think it was Shelly who gets jealous of, of Holly. And, yeah. and that's sort of a natural for people to be jealous if somebody else is, is, is spending time with the person that you care about the most. Yeah. But we see the typical Shelly immaturity, being jealous that Holling is spending all this time with Marilyn and having fun with Marilyn, maybe doing an activity that she kind of wants to do with him. And I'll call back to that episode where um, Holling's old friend comes in from out of town and they're sharing mm. a whole bunch of uh, past experiences together from the, uh, the 60s or the 50s and whatnot. And Shelly gets really jealous of that and tries to to fit in with those memories by, uh, I don't know, she reads a book about the 50s or something and she makes uh, mac and cheese casserole or something like uh, that. That that, yeah, that sounds yeah. familiar. I feel like I, I, I feel like <laughs> yeah. I remember that episode too. I feel like the more I watched it, the more like the stuff's coming back. Like, it's good. Good. <laughs> so, but yeah, that, what I'm trying to say is Shelly has gotten that type of jealous before. And so naturally That's now true. that yeah. Holling is spending all so much time with Marilyn, it's research. Right. Is she so she's getting jealous of Holling having fun, or is she getting jealous of Holling spending time with Marilyn? Like it is it him doing the dancing or is it him doing the dancing with Marilyn? Is it is she getting jealous of him enjoying himself or him enjoying spending time with somebody else other than her? Do you do you see what I'm getting at? I see what you're getting at. I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not really sure. I think it's well, I mean <laughs> Add to that list of things that she could be jealous of. Maybe she's simply frustrated that he's not spending his time with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. There's actually actually an earlier episode in this season where Shelly is imagining these dancers that are appearing in her mind. And in that entire episode, the climax of it is that she marries Holling right there. Because in that episode, it was declared that in order for her to stop seeing these dancers, she needs to marry the the significant other, her love of her life, because it takes two to tango. So in Shelly's mind, maybe subconsciously, she believes that like if she is not the one dancing with Holling, then something is amiss. This is not right, because this is the entire reason why we even got married in the first place. Are they are they married by this point? Uh, yes, they are now. I'm very surprised okay. that that totally slipped my mind, because we were kind of upset Charles that the that the way that episode concluded like it didn't really seem to matter but I guess it kind of matters here you know like Holling is supposed to be according to that episode Holling is supposed to be Shelley's partner in life and in dance like it's a, it's a symbolic dance and uh you know in this episode he's he's got a new dance partner wow I to- that totally slipped my head I don't I don't see how that happened that's 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 got to be it call a callback you know uh, well, what else happened in this? Do you guys want to touch on anything else in this uh, block? Um, did we see? Did we watch a, a Chris and Bernard scene again? Yeah, I, we did. Yeah. Um, Chris and Bernard walk into the bar after you know they obviously have been training. Uh, Bernard's got a stopwatch around his neck, and there are the Miller boys eating breakfast and uh, you know beefing up for the fight too. And Chris is all in good spirits, looking forward to it. Like, hey man, yeah, we're ready to see whatever. And he even gets uh, hauling to pour another round of beer. For for the Miller boys because they're having beer with breakfast. <laughs> it says beer with breakfast reminds me of home. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like how the scene ends because uh, 
Because Bernard has been having these reoccurring dreams where he's being chased by two rednecks right there. <laughs> and it, you can see the camera pan to the Miller bros. And they're a little bit worried on where this conversation yeah. is going. And then Bernard reveals, it's like, oh, it wasn't like a racial thing. It was actually like a family thing. <laughs> and the camera stays on the Miller brothers when they're like, it, they're relieved. Well, so it's kind of a <laughs> neat thing to see that they're like, they, they themselves are like, oh, well, I mean, we may be from like West Virginia and beat up people right here but we're not racist <laughs> i think like, i think bernard is relieved too because yeah well well we know that bernard and chris have shared dreams in the past oh, that's right i rem- i do remember that right <laughs> and so in this case bernard is sharing chris's dream chris being chased by the miller boys mm. and bernard out of context bernard's like well, what the heck is this dream so he thinks that he's experiencing this racial anxiety dream <laughs> uh for himself but really it's just chris's dream so whenever that's revealed to Bernard, that it was just the Miller boys chasing Chris. That's what I was dreaming of. Bernard's also relieved. It's not. It's not a racial anxiety dream, right? It's just, <laughs> a, it's just a genetic awesome. dream or whatever. <laughs> yeah. The familial uh, dreamscape bond that they have. Yeah, that's what that, that they is. didn't know about. You know, at that point. I like uh, really quickly before we get off of this and we're zoom back into the episode. Shelly's wearing a sweatshirt that says, "My folks went to Las Vegas, and all they got me is this T-shirt." And it's just written yeah. <laughs> down on her sweatshirt right there. They need to bring that back because that was something that they had in like the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Where it was like, that was like the gimmick right there. But I can see this coming back, probably ironically, but I also don't think it's that bad of a gag gift and a gag shirt to wear. Yeah. Anyway, I kind of feel like maybe we saw that shirt before or maybe Ruthann had some Las Vegas shirts before. I've definitely seen that sweatshirt before yeah. on Shelly, I think. But it's, it's very front and forward in this... Uh, and when we see it in this episode. This is true. For sure. <laughs> um, okay. Well, you guys ready to jump back in? Let's go. All right. All right. So I paused just for a short little note. Um, Shelly is setting up. Um, so, you know, she's closing out the brick. She's putting like the stools on the on the bar, I guess, to, to mop. But I wanted to talk about the previous scene where um, Marilyn tells Joel that she's found another Jew for his minion. It's uh, a distant cousin of hers who converted. And um, this is sort of a key moment in Joel's uh, arc for this, for this story, for this episode. Because uh, he's starting to say to himself, you know, um, it, it just seems odd to say Minion with these strangers. You know, that, you know, it feels like it's probably the right thing to do, but it just doesn't, doesn't seem doesn't seem right. And uh, I just wanted to point out the camera work here. There's like such, uh, it's almost imperceptible, slow push in on Joel, like after he sits down and starts talking to Marilyn, the camera slowly moves in. And whenever we see Marilyn's reaction, listening, you know, she's also, the camera's also slowly pushing in on her. And uh, yeah, it just gives it that sense of like, we're really getting uh, getting like on the same on the same page on the same level and really diving into like the really thinking about this sort of introspectively. Yeah, I love that the camera, like you said, is zooming in right there, and it's done very elegantly because it's very slow right there. And like you said, there's subtext behind the camera moving right there where we're getting closer between what Joel is trying to get with and his inner self right there. That is a very important scene for the episode. It's it's clearly stating out that the tradition constructed by people are the things that he wants to be rid of. Mm. Like he wants to perform with people of actual bonds that he formed, not artificial bonds. Yeah. And, uh, that, that is a great 
dilemma and and just it's a great idea to explore because like this is this is the the tradition the ceremony of the religion you know it's like there's a reason why we do this uh if you are religious you know and trying to think about like what does it even mean if it doesn't it just something feels weird about it and i think it's a this is going to be a great episode cuz obviously we keep thinking about this i just thought this is a very key moment for joel to give that introspection i don't i don't exactly remember how the episode ends but and maybe i'll be completely wrong about this maybe joel is realizing that he he can say a kaddish or a prayer with the people he does care about which are the people around him the townsfolk maggie holling maurice chris you know those people are his family now yeah, well, I, I'll say this. Uh, I mean, we'll definitely watch it, but I'll say uh, you can see as from this scene and, and moving forward, Joel becomes more and more uncomfortable with the idea of uh, of saying Kaddish with uh, with these like hired guns. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I guess I guess I'm jumping ahead because there is he says that later, so we'll we'll get to that. But I mean, even Maurice, you know, is coming around to Joel, taking care of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Not yeah. the. I mean. Obviously, it's still Maurice being his typical self, but <laughs> there's almost a fatherly quality for sure. About that. Yeah, and I kind of glazed over it, but in our last block, the scene where Joel um, thanks Maurice, th- very fatherly energy from Maurice, and they hug, and Maurice yeah, like the hug smirks the, yeah. and he waves him off, and it seems very much like a father son moment or something. Right. Right. I want to touch upon really briefly the scene right before that, which is where Bernard goes to Maggie Mm. because he wants to skip town. (laughs) He's afraid of actually getting into the fight, not because of like the pain necessarily, but because he doesn't want to betray his principles of Mm. saying like, I should be more civilized than this. Like I shouldn't have to resort into this primal thing that even though I deeply want this, I still want to upend my end of my morality and not beat someone up. Though I do like how he has a line saying like, you know, it's clear that the Miller boys would wipe us in a way. <laughs> yeah. It's like that and, yeah, we're going to get our, our butts handed to us. But, uh, yeah, no, I think it happens off screen, but something did click inside of Bernard. He uh, he says, like, when we were working out with, I think he says tire irons or something. Yeah, he was smashing a tire iron against a <laughs> drum. And he's like, it clicked. Like, I do, I have that drive in me, that Chris, the same drive that Chris has. And as you said, Charles, he doesn't want to betray his... Um, his values. So he's got to get out of there. That's also a great, I would also want to commend the director or the cinematography for that scene because Maggie, it takes place when Maggie's like in the garage repairing something, working on an engine or I don't know. And uh, Bernard is like following her as she moves around the room and the camera as well. Instead of cutting to their different positions, the camera moves with them as they change positions across the, uh, the garage. Pretty cool. Mm, good catch, man. What is what does that do? I mean, as far as the visual narrative. Yeah. What does that do for a scene? There's a lot of ways you could interpret that, I guess. Like what is it? Uh almost I would say with a lot of uh camera movements, the effect should be a subconscious thing. It's an expression that, you know, is not verbalized. Uh it's a an image that gives you a feeling that uh, you know, only images can do. It's not words, it's more of a um uh, a feeling that you get. So subconscious, but I would say for that, um, it almost gives you the sense that Maggie is there to be an ear to Bernard and Bernard is, um, it kind of feels like from what we're getting, the way the camera pushes in on Maggie, it's like Bernard is kind of clinging onto her. Like, can you help me? You know, it's like he follows her. Yeah. It indicates 
the idea that not just Maggie is moving around the garage, but that Bernard is following her around. He's like trying to latching onto her. He's like, like so the camera's following them around as well. Yeah, it's following them, but it's almost uh, it's it's following Maggie, leading Bernard to 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 cross with her. And I mean, it's not it's not a like a, I mean, it's not a back and forth between them. So they're not jumping. They're not doing jump cuts between the different faces right. to There's, have a conversation. Right, right. There is some editing in there, but there is also that there is also camera movement that you know there's no edit, but the shot changes, you know, with that with that movement. Cool. Yeah. You guys wanna keep rolling through? Yeah, let's go. Yeah. All right. Okay, pause. So I'm pausing right after the scene where Shelly and Holling have an argument in the bar. I really have to praise the cinematography yeah. in this scene. So in there, Shelly is stacking up these chairs in the brick because they're closing up the shop right there. And when she's having the argument with Holling, the camera's moving with her and Holling right there as they go back and forth between the chair. But what makes this really unique is that the little... um. I don't know how to describe it, but like that section in the midpoint in the chair that supports it. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, there's like the little, it's like a stool. So it's got like the little. You mean like the cross member between the legs? Ah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> the, there we go, Jake. The cross member actually covers Shelly's eyes perfectly. It's perfectly aligned with there. It doesn't cover Holling's eyes because he's much taller, but Shelly's eyes are covered whenever she goes in and out of the chairs right there. And I think that's a really clever use because I think that's indicating that like, if eyes are like the windows to the soul, then we're not even being able to see what Shelly is truly expressing. Just like Holling can't really see what she's saying right there. Mm, It's just going in and out. There's also subtext in the dialogue itself. Throughout the entire episode, we've seen a lot of comparisons of people comparing themselves to animals. Bernard calls the Miller brothers gorillas and woolly mammoths. Shelly says that she moves like a cat, and Holling says that he moves like an elk right there. And at the beginning of this scene, Holling uses an example of hunting to correlate it into dancing, saying that in hunting, you become like the animal in order to Mm. actually truly experience the full range of hunting. And dancing, you have to become the dancer right there. So we're seeing a parallel between worlds that wouldn't normally exist coming together. And also we're seeing that like maybe deep down, we're not so far away from the other mammals because the entire episode is about tapping into your primal self right here. So I think that this scene in particular really wowed me in this episode, both in a shot cinematography sense and in a dialogue sense. Yeah, it's got that. That's great. I didn't catch the, or I wasn't thinking on that. There is a, a motif running through of uh, primalness, like an, animal animality, just like this very animal forms, you know? And yeah, I didn't even think about the cross members covering Shelly's eyes. Like I, I definitely, I I wrote down, I liked the way the dolly, the dollying shot sort of, um, the way that it, it emphasizes the pressure that, Shelly puts on hauling to push him across the frame. So we're actually moving with this pressure that that Shelly is putting on hauling, uh, kind of controlling the scene. But I, I almost like I wonder like if um like because how they how they found that level to block the eyes. It might have just been a happy accident where they're like, 
oh man, like now we can't see Shelly's eyes. And then the director was like, perfect, keep it. <laughs> you know, you know, like, or I don't know, maybe they planned it too, because they could, you know, they could uh, level those stools at a certain uh, certain level for that. It was probably like, in my mind, I want to say like, they probably had the shot beforehand without thinking about the cross members, yeah. but in, as they were shooting, like you said, they realized <laughs> that like, it actually works with the theme and the uh, actual, like the director was clever enough to be like, no, 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 keep it in. This is actually very great. Yeah. All right. Well, let's hop back into the episode. Okay. I there, paused there, it here, right? As Chris and Bernard are getting psyched up uh, for this fight. But um, a couple things that we, uh, that, that occurred in this block was a dream sequence, which I'm sure we're going to get into, uh, and uh, sort of a confrontation between Shelly and Marilyn. Uh, and then I think the very last thing, maybe, maybe we work backwards, um, is Joel coming up to Reese and, and telling him to call off the hunt. Like we said, he doesn't feel comfortable with saying, uh, the minion, uh, you know, saying the cottage with a, with a bunch of hired guns. Uh, the scene kind of, it feels like this scene needs an extension, but I didn't see any in the deleted scenes uh, because it basically ends with Maurice just calling Joel stupid, which is funny. Yeah, you don't get to see Joel's reaction to that at all. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny, and it does offer a, a very nice transition, a very a very sharp, almost jump cut when we cu- cut into Bernard and Chris, which is kind of like really psyching us up. So maybe that's a very effective edit, you know, but it definitely feels like they they planned for more to happen there. It just it got cut out maybe. That's my thought. Well, Maurice is being his typical, not quite understanding other people's feelings self. There's probably a word for that. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Tactless? Mm. Tactless? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> He's baffled by Joel not being able to connect with these strangers after the links that they're going through to find them for him. I do but like his this- last... Oh, go ahead. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. I, I do like his last minute plan where he says, like, I'll get two Jews up here. Yeah. And I like, I presume that my lawyers are Jewish and I'll get them to fly up here. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right, right. And maybe I'll just get them to work on my will while they're up here. Yeah, like, come up with some excuse to, to get them up there. <laughs> I'm sorry. What were you going to say, Jay? Um, but Joel is realizing that he doesn't want to open up to complete strangers. Maybe, maybe he just wants to rely on his friends. I'm calling back to the yeah. analysis I did earlier <laughs> where Joel is sitting there. Um, where was he? Uh, it was in, in the, the, was in the, the doctor's office. office. Yeah. He was talking with Marilyn, right? Calling the shots, yeah. Where you where you were saying, you know, maybe he's going to say the minion with uh with his his community, his friends. Right, 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 right. And I think this it's maybe that's what's coming to fruition here. Joel realizing that he can open up to the people that do care about him. Well, working backwards, we get that scene where Shelley confronts Marilyn, and I got to say, I was surprised because uh, what at least what Shelley says is her. Her big gripe with this whole situation is not that, at least not necessarily that Holling is spending all this time with Marilyn, but more that Holling is going to be so attractive to people. She's afraid of Holling getting the spotlight because she's jealous of other people coming on to coming on to Holling, you know, uh, right. which is interesting too, but, but go, go ahead, Charles. She has a interesting metaphor that she uses right there or, uh, Simile. I'm sorry. She has a very interesting simile where she says that it's going to be like open season mm, on him. So yeah. once again, relating back to how they're animals. The hunting. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. You might as well paint a target on his undies. She says. <laughs> <laughs> what a line, man. That's tip. That's such a typical Shelly line too. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, also, conveniently, there's not a lot of conflict here because it turns out Marilyn had already fired Holling. Uh, she said he, right. didn't, he didn't have a... He was good at moving, but it's his stillness that's not good. Didn't have the stillness, so... Do you think that there's a possibility that Marilyn sort of detected that Shelly was getting jealous and she fired Holling preemptively for that reason? Yeah, you know, I think Marilyn is can be very perceptive, even if she's not, you know, very expressive a lot of the time. She's very quiet. Or vocal. Yeah, it's not very vocal yeah. about it. That's a good that's a good read, Jay. Uh, maybe she I mean, did that. I think the possibility's out there. Yeah. And perhaps yeah, that definitely. she could see that interfering with Holling's performance down the line. So yeah. She definitely she diffused the Shelley situation, you know, with as few words as she usually speaks. Yeah. She might have said 10 words in that scene. Yeah. <laughs> no, maybe maybe a little more, but you get the idea. She didn't say much, and Shelley was apparently satisfied with that. They didn't really say goodbye. Shelley just sort of walks off. Yeah, I think it's very fitting that Marilyn is very uh, talented at dancing because dancing is an art form that requires no words. The way that you communicate is through your body. Marilyn, being a very nonverbal character, would, of course, become very apt at such an art form. So it goes hand in hand right there. And like you're saying, Jay, like I think it is definitely a possibility that she could see down the line that this would cause problems. So in her own way, without using many words, she was able to defuse the situation. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the dream sequence. Jay, we were, Charles and I were talking about this in a, in a past episode, how we've actually kind of gone through like a dry spell of episodes in this season where there haven't really been a lot of dream sequences. If you compare this season to a lot of the other seasons. I mean, the dream sequences kind of became a staple of the show. Right. Especially um, in they, season two. And I mean, uh, even three. They, they, get, they became more and more exotic and wild and different and weird. They even used one that sort of uh, poked a little bit of fun at Twin Peaks, which was, just, which oh, yeah. was a show that ran concurrently. Uh, if you remember that, I think that might have been season two. I'm not sure. That was... Um, the Russian flu season season one episode five. Oh, was it okay? Mm -hmm. Okay, but but yeah, by the second season, there were there was a dream sequence in every episode, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, surprisingly, unless our memory is incorrect, we've I mean we had one just recently, but it had been quite a while since we had a dream sequence. And as you just said, that's that's a big deal for this show. It was very common, but this is a cool sequence that. Uh, it's like Joel exiting his office, but everything is like of a different era. It's very Wild West. Uh, Jay, you were mentioning while we were watching, the soundtrack is is very like whistly and westerny. Yeah, and uh, the instrument there is uh, it's what's referred to as a the Jew's harp or a Jew harp, which is actually I think it's just a derivative of jaw harp. It's like a piece of metal that you put in your mouth and you flick like a like a tab of metal that's like boing, boing, boing. That's the sound that you hear in a lot of Western, uh, Western style songs, I guess. You can, I guess you can pitch it by the length of uh, the strip of metal or something. Mm. But anyway, yeah, he's approached by the Minion Rangers. Uh, We're your Jews, they say. They come up, come up on horseback. We have, what is it? Half Torah will travel. And they all have, uh, they all have badges on, which kind of harks back to uh, what Charles was saying when they were putting up the signs around town searching for Jews. The they all have badges on yeah. them, on them, like they were sheriff's badges, except the badges are in the shape of the Star of David. So, <laughs> I mean, is that a callback to uh, Nazi Germany or what? Uh, <laughs> I Well, you know, earlier... It's more of a playful. Well, go ahead, Charles. Earlier in the episode, going off of that, 
uh, Maurice is examining a map of Sicily, Alaska, and he's got these thumbtacks. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that kind of resembles how they were like Germany was conquering like, oh, parts God. of Europe. Like, I mean, I don't. This show definitely isn't anti-Semitic in any way, but uh, there are a few elements of this particular episode that do evoke that sure. uh, mentality. I thought it was whatever reason. I just thought it was playful because it's like they're wearing a star and it's a star, it's a sign right. of their Obviously, Judaism. Obviously I think that's <laughs> in the spirit of what the the writers and directors intended was for it to be a playful thing like oh hey instead of a sheriff star they can be wearing these stars of David. But it's hard to avoid the imagery. Right. When you do something like that it's sort of more of a direct reference than I think they intended. Why do you guys think that they are portrayed as Western Rangers in this scene? Like, why Western Rangers? I think it's the hired guns metaphor. That uh, Well, I think ultimately this scene is Joel's subconscious explaining to him. Like, he knows he's had these weird feelings about these strangers, you know? And a lot of times, I don't know, sometimes for me too, if I like think about my dreams hard enough, I think I can actually figure out like, oh, the reason I had this dream it's because I had this feeling, and it actually um, it elus- illuminates some some thoughts that I couldn't really put together just from feelings. But if you dream about it, you can be like, "That's why I dreamt that." And I think Joel had this dream because uh, it's not just the fact that they're strangers, but that they are like hired guns, as he says. Like he particularly doesn't feel great about saying a minion with people who are just getting paid to do it. You know, they didn't. That's almost that could almost be. Maybe if Uncle Manny wasn't so orthodox, if he were anyone else, that could be offensive. He's like, I'm going to pay you to cry for you know, the person that I loved. You, you didn't mm-hmm. even know them. Even just outside of the Jewish context as well, if, if, if you're paying somebody to portray an emotion, they might as well just be an actor. Yeah. It's, that, it's very false it's, or something. It's not genuine. Yeah, not genuine. It, or it might not. It doesn't have to be genuine. Yeah. Uh, some of the Minion Rangers, the names they list off, well, we see... Uh, Buck shown again, and we see that. Uh, we Nigel didn't talk Axelrod. about him. Yeah, we didn't talk about. No, him, we didn't but talk about. That was the 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 Jewish man that uh, Ruth Ann finds. Yeah, he's like an uh, ornithologist, but or like a bird watcher, but he also works for British Petroleum. Uh, anyway, they're all dressed up as as uh, like Western wear. And a couple other names they list are Levi and Strauss and uh, the Cohen brothers, Joel and Ethan Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's an Ethiopian Jew as well. I didn't catch his name. And of course, uh, Marilyn's distant cousin in like a traditional Indian head garb. Um, But also, just to point out, the cinematography of this scene is also great. There's a really cool shot where Joel looks out and then we get sort of a 180 pan across the landscape. And then it lands, the end of the pan lands on like Joel's face in a close-up. It might be like in a a portrait uh, or a... um, what do you call that when you're like on the side? Profile. Profile. Like a profile shot. I can't, maybe not, but it's like very close to his face. And there's even like a reflection shot where we see like the, when we first see the minion rangers riding up on horseback, we see them in the reflection of the window. So lots of little camera tricks. I, I don't know particularly why they did it. Maybe just to be more stylistic in this dream atmosphere. Yeah, they're really flexing on this episode with the <laughs> cinematography. <laughs> I want to mention something about uh, finishing up the dream sequence. You know, Joel awkwardly gets on the horse and rides off into whatever with them. Actually, I think the direction they were going, it was up the hill toward uh, where Joel's house is, at least geographically. Anyway, that's how the dream ends. You can tell it's a stuntman doing it. and it, it, The stuntman <laughs> did some great acting, I thought. But yeah. then Joel wakes up in his bed, and the music shifts from the Western theme, playing the same melody 
it shifts back into the clarinet klezmer style joel theme yeah yeah that's I pretty that cool was neat. and yeah just overall the music the original score in this episode has been great uh, okay well let's jump back in we're kind of in the home stretch here um but yeah let's dive back in yeah, let's pause it real fast because Daniel, I agree with you. I heard you say I'm, I'm a little confused. Like I th- I'm, go ahead. Very confused, actually. I don't. I'm not exactly sure how how that or worked. Why. Yeah, how that worked. I don't. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there in that scene. Like I do know what's going on there, but like. So basically, just to catch us up, uh, this was literally the scene right after was uh, is like Chris and Bernard getting psyched up for a fight, and the fight comes to them, but they elude it somehow like they what exactly just happened yeah it looks like that they are connected by this mutual and enmity and yeah that's what they say they're connected by this mutual enmity that they look forward to and without it there wouldn't be any structure to hold them up so it looks like they have a symbiotic relationship between the two that it's like a it's like a Batman Joker thing, I guess, if you're thinking of like the Dark Knight or whatever. Yeah, kind of like that. The way that I imagined it is that they're like co-prime integers where they only have one common <laughs> factor, which is their hatred for one another. That's what connects them right there. Anything else doesn't connect them. Just that one thing right there. And, you know, in a way, it's kind of beautiful because it goes really into the depths of their ancestry right there, which is, in a way, another way of looking into it in a primal level, whereas this is like baked into their genealogy that they're just going to hate each other indiscriminately, and they can't remove that, or else you would just remove a part of your identity. Yeah, I, I like what they're going for, and um, I, I can understand what's happening, but uh, I'm also with Daniel here. Like, I don't... Like, Why didn't they fight? Yeah, I, I don't that's think what, it would like, what are they? I don't think this could have actually worked, even if they, and I think they all understood it, except maybe Tommy. Tommy was like, what's going on? I want to fight. And he's like, no, go back in the car. <laughs> Everyone, like the other, the other Miller brother got it. He understood it. But to me, it's just like, I think they could have, they could have still fought. And even if someone died, even if, even if the Millers killed both of the Stevens, uh, well, I would say there would still be some kind of feud, some sort of revenge or payback that need to be fulfilled. I guess if these were like the last of the bloodline, I guess that could be a thing. Like if you, if that happened, but like the fact that this feud has been an, uh, a, a generational feud, you know, it's possible that one of the Millers killed one of the Stevens or one of the Stevens killed one of the Millers. Well, and, uh, let me ask you yeah. this, Lee, have they ever fought in the past? Has Chris ever fought any of the Miller brothers in the past? Or is this like the first time that they've met face to face? Not on the show, though. I imagine they got into a lot of like, I, I imagine Brawls. they were brawling like whenever Chris lived back in, in West Virginia. Virginia. Yeah, West Virginia. Yeah, it's it's stated okay. before that they got into a lot of brawls right here, but this one looks a little bit different in that they're looking to end things uh, permanently right here permanently. because oh, Chris. I didn't, see, I didn't get that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't fully understand that part. Their their revenge okay. on Chris initially was the warrant, and Chris dodged that. So because he already landed quote unquote his blowback, their next you're talking one, about from. An earlier episode in the season? Yeah, so yeah. like an earlier episode in the season, they had a warrant for Chris to haul him back to West Virginia and through the magic of Mike. So like the police show up? Yeah, uh, yeah there's like yeah. a, through the magic, yeah, go ahead, Charles, the magic of <laughs> yeah. Mike Monroe, the lawyer. The, yeah, yeah. so Mike Monroe used his lawyer skills for once and he was, he was uh, Chris Stevens' lawyer and 
in that episode, he was supposed to go back in toward there, and they did have the police. They had the recurring character of what is her? Samansky, Barbara Samansky. Samansky. Yeah. <laughs> yes, she was there, and I think that because he had dodged that fate, that's why they upped the ante, and they say like, "All right, well, let's like really just." We're just, I mean, I might just have to kill you right here. And I think but that's it was the what background, ties it in. The further background is the Miller boys are the ones that got the police involved to bring Chris back to West Virginia? Yeah, to get him arrest, to arrest mm-hmm. him and bring him back. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. And that's so this why... Is, this episode is like them following up on that. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I think that's why they don't really get into the fight because I think this fight would have ended like really nastily. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, this is the typical Northern Exposure bait and switch where <laughs> something is building to head and you completely expect a fight or conflict or something to happen, and then it just doesn't. Like the episode where um, What's-His-Face, the, the Russian author or whoever, yeah. or musician. War and Peace. War and Peace. Yeah, that episode, War gun, and Peace, gun where the, uh, the, the Russian guy comes to town and Maurice and him start to have a duel to the extent that the whole town shows up. They both have pistols and they walk to the side. Of course, in that episode, Joel breaks the fourth wall and says, you guys know we aren't going to do this. This is, uh, this is a TV or it's not in the Cable script or TV whatever. Or whatever. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can't do this on TV. <laughs> that's, that's the, I think that might have been the first example of the, the bait and switch that Northern Exposure yeah. does for their conflicts. But this is, this is right along the lines of that. For sure. They're going to fight and then all of a sudden they're like, Nah, we don't need to fight. It, this is what defines our existence. I'll still stand with Daniel, though, because I get what they're going for, and it totally makes sense. And it's satisfying. It's a fulfilling conclusion, but it also just doesn't see it feels it also feels like a cop out in a way. But I guess how else are you gonna do it? you you mentioned Charles, like say, yeah, how they can't actually fight each other because then someone's gonna get murdered, I guess. <laughs> So um, I want to point out the way the scene starts. We talked about it's a hard cut juxtaposition from that last moment where uh, where Maurice is calling Joel an idiot and then uh, cuts to like very high energy and um, it's a handheld camera. So we see like uh, it's kind of shaky and we actually see the car pull up in the shot and the Miller brothers hop out of the car. Like, no, there's no cuts. It's very continuous. And they're kind of like cameras running around with them very shakily. Uh, and, and then, yeah, th- th- that's when Bernard kind of makes that, uh, g- gets that sort of excuse or that reason for why they shouldn't, uh, they can't do this. It would, it would end their, their, their like meaning to their life is, is just this feud. Okay. I think we've got like two scenes left. So let's hop back in. All right, so that was the end of the episode. We had the two last scenes. Uh, maybe we go in order from the 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 Cajun two step dance contest first. Yeah. So in that scene, we see that Marilyn has her new partner with her, which is her former partner, and <laughs> they get into this whirlwind of a dance right there. Mm. And Shelley remarks that you know he's quite short for his, I, I guess his gender position i'm not entirely too sure what she means by that <laughs> he looks dancer, like ordinary height yeah. to me <laughs> <He> looks- <laughs> honestly like he looks like he's an ordinary male height but holling remarks that he has good stillness though what do you guys think good stillness means i think that was holling being bitter about being <laughs> yeah. fired by Marilyn because Marilyn told shelly that he didn't have good stillness so uh, uh, my guess is that came up in the conversation that Marilyn has when she fires Holling, saying that he doesn't have good stillness, you know, directly to Holling. So Holling's like bitter that 
he got fired, you know? Like, mm. he should be the one dancing with her right now, except Marilyn thinks he has a bad stillness. So he that's him vocalizing that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Daniel, what do you think? Quick what do you question think? here. Yeah. I don't, I don't, so I'm not exactly sure what good stillness means, but <laughs> how exactly tall is Marilyn? Because, like, yeah, he isn't true. really that much taller than her. So he he is, compared to Holling, Holling the guy is pretty short. But Compared he's like Holly, almost he is like short. He, the 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 guy. So the guy that Marilyn is dancing with, we'll call him Robert Livingston, because that's what he's announced as. He is comparative right. to Holling. He's probably a better height match to Marilyn than Holling, because Holling's too tall too to Marilyn. I right. would say that's so, true. So I think Shelley was just. Yeah, just I think I think Shelley was just trying to make Holling feel better, you know, and uh, it's funny because yeah. Holling's watching. He's kind of like biting his thumb. He's just like very, uh, he's very cri- I don't critical, I guess, but he's like, he's definitely, I think he said jealous. Someone said, you know, you could tell that he's like, he's thinking about that, about how he lost that chance. But God, it's such a, it's a wonderful scene because they really, they, they stick on it for a good amount. Like they, we can see Marilyn and Robert dancing and they're great. They're really good at dancing and we can see a big smile on Marilyn's face uh, a couple people have gathered, like Maurice is there with Ed and Ruthann, and they're eating some. Apparently, they got some food there at this contest. Uh, Maurice says, excellent gumbo. Um, apparently, Ed, Ed made says it. says it's an old Tlingit recipe. Yeah, <laughs> apparently Ed made <laughs> Definitely it. Definitely not in the uh, Cajun style. <laughs> yeah, so I'm curious to see Hopefully Tlingit Hopefully not with gumbo. tomato sauce. Tlingit gumbo. That's not in the Northern uh, Exposure Cookbook, unfortunately, but... Uh, Maggie's gumbo is in the cookbook. But, uh, oh, did you guys? Uh, was there a contest winner? I kind of missed that. Yeah, we did have a contest winner. Daniel, I don't know if you know, but they Lee got a hold of the Northern Exposure Cookbook, and I think he got two copies. Right. Um, and so he ended up doing a. They ended up doing a giveaway. Oh, okay. Okay, that's what I was like. What do you mean the winner? Of, the winner of the dance competition? I was like, wait, no, they, <laughs> they didn't announce it. <laughs> that's why I was a little confused for a second. Then that, that makes more sense. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, the winner was Bobby Butts McMahon off of Facebook. We did like a contest on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, yeah, she was very thrilled to to get it. I, I wonder cool. if you're listening, Bobby, let us know if you've cooked anything from it. They uh, they also mentioned in this uh, scene some blackened coho. Like uh, Ruth Ann's like, fish? I'm going to go get some more blackened coho. We did talk about coho recently on this podcast because coho is a fish. I think it's kind ah. of like a salmon or something. Or, I don't know. But uh the name of the ill winds that blow through town, they call them the cohos, which we were, that's why we were like, what is a, what does coho mean? It's like I remember a, listening to that episode you guys did. And, yeah, that's and, the one you're, I think your, your mom, into that. your mom was on that episode. Uh, yeah, Michelle, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that, uh, it's like a, um, not colloquial, what's the word I'm looking for? Regional. It's a regional term for some fish. Oh, I got to say the, the, uh, the gumbo that, Maurice is eating. It kind of just looks more like a block of cornbread. It looks more like red beans and rice or something, right? <laughs> that's what I thought too. Maybe. On that plate, right? <laughs> was it a bowl? He didn't have a bowl. It was did he? a plate. No, he had a. It was a plate. Yeah. Huh? How do you eat gumbo with a plate? I don't know. Maybe he mixed that's... it with the red beans and rice right there. Yeah. Mm. And again, this is Tlingit gumbo, so who knows? It could be its own thing. It could be completely different. <laughs> For those listeners who don't know, gumbo is more like a like a, a soup. Yeah, um, type of dish. So with, like, it's eaten rice in a bowl with a spoon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was the the sort of Cajun two-step dance contest. Our final scene, Joel is holding like a service, I believe, for 
his uncle Manny and he's up on the on the podium and he's got his like talus and he's like kisses it, puts it on, and basically relates the idea that, you know, I think well, I, I like this line he says. I'm no rabbi, but it seems to me that the purpose of saying a Kaddish is to be with your community. And what I realized this week is that well, you're my community. And I think that's great. You know, like finally we talk about this progression of like, you know, Joel in the first episode is trying to escape Alaska and slowly he starts uh, setting his roots here. And he's starting, he admits it here that these people, these are his, this is his community. That's good. You see that develop throughout the whole episode, his uncertainty with saying the Kaddish with complete strangers and the slow realization that, well, the slow thought process of him trying to sort out who his community is, who his family is. And he eventually realizes it's the people around him, the people who he experiences everyday life with. Right. He invites people of all religions to join him. And, you know, what I found really interesting is that Chris and Bernard are the only ones that stand up whenever <laughs> yeah. Joel is about to recite. Uh, is there a religion that dictates that? I was a little bit lost on that. I don't know. Chris has never been in the show. Chris has never been, uh, he never has adhered to one religion. It's like he accepts multiple different right, ways to worship. Right. He serves as the town's priest, uh, for the purpose of Shelley and Hollings wedding or pastor for some other occasion. He's the religious figurehead in the town. I think Shelley put it in one episode. He's the closest thing to, to God that yeah. Sicily has, um, which is true, but you're never really certain about what faith he's practicing. But I think what makes the scene really neat is that it's a, it's a cross-section of many different religions and ways to worship uh, yeah. and ways to be spiritual, um, which I think if you take any slice of America or the United States or even the world, that that's something that's really sort of a beautiful thing is that people experience life differently uh, and they can do it together, which brings us everybody, everybody together. Yeah, I uh, you know we see a lot of different representations of how people are mourning. Like you mentioned, Chris and Bernard stand, and uh, Maurice, uh, Maurice like buries his face in his palms. Um, someone else is like extending their arms forward. You know, so there's a lot of different ways to grieve and and to worship. Um, but yeah, I don't know exactly what what it is. Uh, you were asking Charles like what's what's the religion of standing? You know, but I will say. You know, for Shabbat, there were there are moments whenever we're in the synagogue and you would rise or you would sit down at certain points. But I think there's one thing my grandmother told me that I always thought was very interesting. And I actually can't remember what it's for. I think it's for when you're reading the Torah, but I think it's for a lot of other things, is um, you don't rise for that part. You stay seating. And the reason is because um, being seated is like, uh, it's supposed to also emulate uh, like studying when you're studying in school or just on your own, like researching and stuff, you're seated at a desk and study is like a mitzvah for, for the Jewish faith, which is like, it's a good deed. So I think that's so cool that the religion itself has that precept of like studying is a good thing for you. Like mm -hmm. uh, that's a great religious, uh, belief, I think. And, and I think it's cool that I could be wrong. I think it's with the Torah, but it might just be with particular prayers, um, or specific prayers that you have to be seated when you say these prayers. That's really interesting. Yeah, I always thought that was cool. 
I was not raised religious at all, but uh, it was underneath my impression that in Christianity, you stand up a lot during the sermon, right? Yeah, I think they do that. And then, like I said, we did it We did it in synagogue too. Uh, I think I always thought it was just so people don't fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of us here are very religious, so we can't really answer that, like why people stand. But uh, I want to say, I do want to say, I will share this. There's an extended version of this scene when Shelley asks, uh, well, what's the meaning of the Kaddish? What does it mean? So I'll play that for you guys real fast. Shelley? What does the prayer mean? Um, the Kaddish is, uh, well, let's see. I mean, it's in Hebrew. Oh, actually, Joel, it's written in Aramaic, transcribed into Hebrew. Really? Would you mind? No, please. Kaddish is an ancient prose poem, um, most likely written after the destruction of the first temple about 586 BC. And uh, although it is considered the mourner's prayer, it's, uh, it's hardly any ashes to ashes, dust to dust kind of numbers. In fact, the Grim Reaper doesn't even make an appearance. Correct. Indeed, the prayer glorifies God and repeatedly exalts his name. Well, thank you guys. Um... I feel like I have seen this deleted scene as well. Like oh, I've wow. watched it with you, Lee. <laughs> with you or with yeah. Jay or somebody. I, f- I really feel like that I have... Probably with you, Lee. Actually, yeah. probably more likely that I, I watch it with you because it, it does sound familiar. It's like, and it's it's then it's Bernard and Chris talking and, and giving it kind of giving him an answer about it. Yeah, and that's funny because like I think that's a I don't know why, but it's a representation in popular media that like most Jews are not like very religious or very practicing. So Joel doesn't even really have the answer. He's like, uh, yeah. well, let's see. It's a Hebrew. It's written in Hebrew. And like Bernard's actually. actually, knows. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is a very long prayer. I think I mentioned that uh, Charles in the last episode, when you were guessing like what the episode might, what this episode might be about. It's a very long prayer. And as we see in the episode, Joel starts reciting it and, uh, it lasts for a good bit, and I think it even fades out before he finishes. But uh, I also think it's really funny. Joel's like Hebrew voice, reading in Hebrew. It's such it's, a higher pitch than his normal speaking voice. Stra- very strange and kind of high-pitched. It reminds me, it's like that's that's the voice of Joel at his bar mitzvah when he's like going through puberty and oh, like wow. chanting uh, Hebrew, you know? <laughs> like that's the only way he knows how to speak Hebrew. Yeah, it's slightly more nasally. And <laughs> I, I have been thinking about this for a while actually, but whenever we speak different languages, we definitely do use uh, different pitches in order yeah. to speak that language. So whenever I speak Chinese, I think my voice is a little bit more lower compared to when I'm speaking English, which is a little bit more higher right there. So yeah, maybe to Joel, that's just how he grew up with, like the way he learned how to pronounce his words in Hebrew. He was like, all right, you just have to, uh, you know, raise your voice a little bit higher. <laughs> There's actually a good point, uh, Charles. In Japanese, the it's not, certain words aren't said with stress. It's said with pitch instead of mm. like, the pronunciation of, like, I guess pronunciation, like, mm-hmm. the stress is pronunciation, like pronunciation. Right. Whereas in Japanese, it's not how strong you say the word, it's your voice going up in pitch and then back down and then keeping the same where you put the pitch. lower pitch, where you right. put the pitch. Right, that's exactly so right. That might be a, that might be a thing in 
Hebrew as well, but I'm, I'm actually, I don't know. I, I wouldn't know. That that concept is uh, taken from Chinese because in Chinese, there is uh, about five ways in which you can say a word. So uh, <laughs> very quickly, you can make it go in a downward angle, a upward angle, a down and then an upward angle, and then like a straight down, straight up. It has a lot of different ways in which you can say it. And each one of those ways can mean a different thing yeah. right there. Or it could just be non-existent and they don't, don't have a word for it yet. But yeah, mm. you're exactly right, Daniel. Uh, with that pitch in mind, it's very important in those languages uh, for you to pronounce it in that way. Whereas in English, we, I mean, shoot, man. Like, <laughs> there's so many ways that you can say a word. I mean, just look at the regional dialects from the East Coast and the West Coast. You can just see that like, oh, yeah. he pronounced it like totally different, but like it means the same. Emphasis on the wrong syllable, but we still know I, what that means. I would argue when you that there's that some <laughs> unspoken rules in English about changing the pitch in order to have a different meaning. Uh, oh, really? Certain words and phrases. Uh, would you mind? I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Uh, well, okay. If if you're responding cheekily to something, oh. and you say uh, and you say, "Yeah, right," which yeah. would mean something completely different from if you're agreeing somebody and you say, "Yeah, right," which those two. Uh, I'm not going to be very good at identifying the differences in the pitch between the two things I just said. But my, <laughs> my point stands. You're saying the same words, but because you're emphasizing them differently or changing the pitch differently, they mean two different things. Oh, okay. Nice. But it also depends on the context, too. Yeah. yeah. This reminds me of, uh, I saw a video of this old device called the Voter, which was the first voice synthesizer. And it was sort of almost as if like a... a what is that? A stenographer who like uses like a special keyboard who, when they uh, transcribe like a court yeah. in the in court. So it was this weird device that had keys like a keyboard, but not really like a keyboard, and it would make certain sounds that would produce words. So it was a voice synthesis, and the demonstration was like it can show like it doesn't just say the words, but it shows you the inflections with the pitch. You can control like the pitch with a certain. Um, with a certain button or, or pedal. And it was like, the way they demonstrated it was, the man was like, who did she see? She saw him. Who saw him? She saw him. Mm. Uh, you know, it's you know, just accenting the different parts of the sentence with pitch uh, changes the meaning. Doesn't change the word, but kind of changes the, the context, the intent, I guess. Oh, that's really neat. Uh, that, that is a problem. Well, I mean, it's been here for like millions of years. I can't really say it's a problem, but whenever you're reading something, you yeah. only have bold or italics to get the point across. Whereas when you're yes. speaking, you know, it's the difference between taking a phone call or just sending a text message. It's like, oh, that's did he mean that like right. sarcastically? Or is like, did, did he really call Very me a Very much so, yeah. We can communicate yeah. so much more information verbally than than simply with text. Right. Relating this all back to Hebrew, uh, the whole idea of like uh, pitch changing the meaning. I don't know if it changes the meaning, but pitch was important, I remember, for um, chanting Hebrew. Like for, at least for my bar mitzvah, I had to chant a Torah portion. And so that's reading from the Torah, but also not just reading from the Torah, which interestingly enough, like normally when you read Hebrew, when I read Hebrew, you see the letters and stuff, but in the Torah, there are no vowels. So like, you know, you have to kind of really know what each word is because you can't see the vowels. You just see the consonants. But um, apart from that, you also, um, like I had to sit a lot of times, like I think Joel in this episode mentions, like I, I, uh, 
I practiced my Torah portion with my uncle Manny. We spent so many hours. I can't remember any of it, but I know we spent so long on that. I spent many hours with the rabbi, uh, like going over. He would take the writing and he would put certain little accent marks on the different letters. And it was like this part, there was like maybe four or five, maybe more different symbols and they each meant a different thing. Like you were saying, Daniel, one means like go up and pitch or actually Charles, you were saying like one means like you go up, one means you go down. One means you go up and then down, like a lot of different things. Uh, so that is a part of at least chanting. I don't know if that's part of, a, of of the speech, but for chanting the Torah portion, yeah. Cool. Well, I think we can probably wrap this up. Yeah, yeah well, let's circle back to, do we want to talk about any overarching themes of the episode? Sure. I know, Charles, you pointed out the anim- animalism, just like the animal imagery in the words and in the, uh, in the dialogue, uh, that yeah. motif going throughout. Yeah, there was a a running theme of returning back to your primal self right there. We see it within the fight with the Millers and the Stevens and like, oh no, it's like, it feels so good. That's something uh, primal within you that you need to go toward there. And I think that ties into the theme of what Joel is trying to do, where he is a kind of abandoning tradition, but also accepting it in a new way right there. Yeah. So both delving into the past in one it, 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 honestly, both of them coming out with a different way, actually. Yeah, there is a there is a sort of a thread between that with uh, primal violence or whatever, you know, like caveman sense, but then also uh, sort of this long history of tradition in religion. Um, tying in the Joel-Maggie relationship. Obviously, this episode didn't focus a lot of time on the Joel-Maggie relationship, but, you know, overall, throughout the whole series... Of course, by this point, you know, they've had an intimate relationship together, and the relationship has continued to, to grow. In this episode, the only interaction they have is when Joel, I mean, Maggie goes to check on Joel to see if he's okay. They're looking at the photo album together. She doesn't really go over there with any other purpose, just other than to check in on him as a friend, to say, hey, yeah. how are you doing? Uh, and she doesn't stay very long. They look at, honestly, the scene lasts, what, two minutes? And she walks <laughs> in at the beginning, and she walks out at the end. So it's kind of a very <laughs> brief visit, which... Uh, honestly, if that if it was something that happened in real life, I I would foresee that taking longer than yeah, just the two just minutes of a scene. Hang out but, for a little bit before you leave, man. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. The point still stands. The the purpose was the same, just yeah. abbreviated. She's there to comfort him as as a friend, which is just a very touching thing between them. Yeah, I think things are going pretty good for them. Like, uh, it's just if you chart their relationship, they're always at each other's throats. But for this episode, it's pretty positive. I think. And maybe it's just because his uncle passed away and they were close. Maybe she's just being nice to him for that. But, you know, still. Yeah. Well, Daniel, you, you seem to remember through, like, while watching this episode, you're like, okay, I've definitely seen this before, this episode. Yes, I've definitely seen this episode <laughs> before. Uh, what sort of feelings did you get returning to this episode, this show? Like, what characters do you remember fondly or not fondly? <laughs> like... What do you think about the show, returning to well, it after all this time? I do remember Joel and Maggie being, you know, not really, they're, they're always at each other's throats from time to time. I mean, obviously not this episode because she wants to comfort him, but also it makes me remember, it's like, oh yeah, okay, say Maurice, he's kind of blunt, tactless <laughs> a little bit, but he is who he is. And then uh, like Shelly and... Uh, Calling. I, I I remember their relationship being. I mean, it wasn't. It was good, but it wasn't great because like that. Every so often they get jealous of each other, or yeah. they would be jealous of something. 
Yeah. And something disrupting them. Yeah. I guess my beef, I, the reason why I'm not like a huge fan <laughs> is maybe just because it's, so, it's such an old television show or I, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't, what I mean, whenever I say I'm not a big fan, I don't see myself going out and watching these episodes by myself for enjoyment, but I enjoy watching with Jay or you. Yeah. Like it, it's not, it's not like it's a bad show. It's just, I, I myself don't see myself going out and rewatching it just just to watch it, you know? Yeah, that's fine. We've had uh, some guests that have been honest, just like you, and said, like, you know, I see the merits of the show. I think that it is well-written. It's just not my cup of tea. Like, it's not something in which I would actively seek out in my free time and watch. And I think that's perfectly fine. Yeah, and, you know, we had a lot of fun. We were laughing, like, while watching this episode just now, and uh, I think we all enjoyed it. But also, yeah, it is a bit strange. I don't know why, Charles, but we're, you know, this show is 30 years old now. It's, it is an old show to speak up of what Daniel's saying. Like this is kind of outdated in a lot of ways, uh, but a lot of, a lot of things are remarkable, you know, still about this show, but it is just, it is a strange fixation we have, Charles, to, to continue watching this show. (laughs) Well, cool. I'm very glad we got to get together and watch. I always like these types of episodes because it's like watching, you know, we talked about this before in a pandemic, you know, you can't really get together. Though now we're all vaccinated. So, uh, and the CDC just sort of lifting guidelines. We got to start having like Northern Exposure Marathons again. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Daniel's like, oh God, what did I sign up for? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's all right. No, that's good. It's good. There's nothing wrong with that. Like I, like I said, I... I enjoy y'all's company. I don't mind hanging out with y'all. If it, if it's watching Northern Exposure, so be it. That's yeah. If we get to hang out with each other, that's cool. I'm it's good with that. I'll, I'll enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel, if Daniel has to be the Joel Fleischman in this situation, he'll 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 bear it. <laughs> yeah, this is well, his well, let's not let's not go that far. I'm, I won't be like grudging about it. Like I won't complain. Sorry, that's okay. Well, we can believe. We can believe. It's okay. No, what was I trying to say? Like, no, don't go that far with it, Charles. I, <laughs> I won't. I won't complain throughout the episode as we're watching it. I won't. I won't be the Joel Fleshman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll enjoy it as it's as we're as it's happening. You know, especially yeah. if we're all gathered together. And you know, it's a fun show. We we enjoyed it. So once again, thanks guys for joining us. Always fun to watch like together because so so many times Charles and I were watching this separately, writing notes, pausing it like we did today, but like pausing it and writing notes. And these episodes can last like you know, up to two hours or more, just if we're taking our time to, to write out the notes like today, um, like we did today with pausing, but, um, yeah, guys, good, good seeing you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, next week, it'll probably just be me and Charles alone, but Charles, we're going to be talking about the 23rd episode of season four. It's called mud and blood. Do you have any predictions for what mud and blood is going to be about? Uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's totally not going to be about this, but when you say mud and blood, you can't you can't help but think about uh, Harry Potter and the term mud blood. I don't. I I'm actually that's a blind spot for me. So tell me now, what is a mud blood? It's somebody that uh, ruined their lineage by marrying a Muggle. Um, oh wow! Somebody who doesn't do magic. I'm going to guess that that's not what the next episode is about. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Seeing as Harry Potter had not been written yet, but uh, I'm also we're in a Zoom call right now with Daniel and Jay. They're in the same place and they're arguing with each other about something. And we muted so you guys can't hear because it would have spoiled the episode for Charles. <laughs> yeah, we, oh, we, they started watching that episode. Yeah, we did. Mud so and right blood. before, before, right it, before, while we were getting everything set up, Daniel and I were eating lunch, <laughs> and uh, 
And so we started the next episode. After, we started watching Mud and Blood. And so ah. we got about halfway through it. So it refreshed our memories on, on what happened. So Daniel and I were talking about that off comms. Okay. It's okay. I'm going to sign us off. Uh, but um, Okay. <laughs> thanks again, Charles, for potting with me. Thanks, Jay and Daniel. Charles, I'll see you next week. All right. I'll see you next week, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Jay and Daniel for being our guests. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoveraxposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoveraxposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.